Welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and in each episode, Matt and I discuss the real-life struggles, ideas, and strategies of successful entrepreneurs and business leaders like himself. Unlike much of the startup or management advice out there, these conversations don't come from a book or a TED Talk, but rather from current daily ins and outs of an entrepreneur in the trenches making it happen every day. This week, we talk about different ways to manage a team. Specifically, we compare and contrast the two basic styles of management, management by design and management by intervention. The latter is more of a hands-on style of management that most people are probably accustomed to, while the former is decidedly a little more hands-off and a little more math style. Both have their uses in appropriate situations, but management by design is probably less discussed or even known of. So of course, this is Matt's preferred management style. So if you're unfamiliar with the concept of management by design, or if you're interested in management strategies in general, this is definitely the episode for you. With that, here's Matt. So Matt, I wanted to ask you some questions today about, I guess, management styles. Uh, We talked a lot about sort of company strategy, CEO activity, how you prepare a lot of logistics and the foundations of the company in terms of its business, you know, stance and and finances and, and a lot of things like that. But obviously a big part of running a company is running the people in the company. And that's a lot. Like as someone who's been, I've had moments of being a manager and failed miserably. And so Maybe we can just start talking about that, just how you think about management in general and just kind of see where this goes. I was lucky enough that I got introduced to some management systems pretty early on in my life. I would say in my, maybe by the time I was 20, I was introduced to a couple of pretty effective systems and I became a big practitioner and advocate for these management systems. And I found that they worked, they worked pretty well. I mean, they were, it's hard, it's difficult to use them, but they were pretty effective. You know, these are things like situational leadership which some people may be familiar with, using some structured systems like uh, GSNR meetings, which are goal setting and review meetings. It's a structured one-on-one meeting, goal planning and quarterly planning, like using these different well-understood, I mean, there are books written on these ideas, well-understood systems in order to be able to move the team forward. But it's frankly, they're pretty exhausting to do over time. And there are real limitations to what's possible with them. So while I still kind of dig into that toolkit from time to time, and I definitely encourage a lot of you know, my entrepreneurial friends who are you know, early in their businesses, I encourage them to use these tools. I think that in many cases, and what you've probably seen, what you've witnessed, my management approach at Royalty Exchange is quite a bit different than that. I'm glad you said that. When I was coming into the organization, you guys had sent me some I think like audio <laughs> lessons, particularly on the uh, the GSNR stuff. And I remember going through all that. And I can't say that it's something that I, either you do it in some really like Yoda-like way where I don't even realize you're doing it or we're not exactly doing it anymore or something. Or maybe it's just me since I'm sort of, I don't know if I'm your typical <laughs> report. Your experience is probably pretty typical for people that I, that, you know, report to me directly. I mean, even that idea of reporting to me, I don't like that. And that's just kind of how I've stepped away from these structures a bit as I've gotten further along in my career. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I realized is that those structures are really, really effective. And sometimes they can be very good for the people on the team and their development because it's a lot of high contact with them. And if they're, depending upon the skill level that they have and the experience they have in their career, it can really move them you know, through the learning curve faster using that structured processes. However, it doesn't make for as resilient an organization. Dynamism of the organization is sort of taken away by it because there's too, almost too much structure. It's almost too much command and control. In this business in particular, you know, we do a lot of inventing. 
we know what we're trying to do. We know what we're trying to build, but there's not like a formula for it. It's not like we know, like on a factory floor, for instance, that we need to manufacture 430 widgets a day. And here's the processes for it. And here's the people we need for it. And we just train them to do these things and then measure their performance over and over. Instead, there's a lot we're learning along the way. And, you know, this is the stuff that humans are particularly good at if they have the right framework for, you know, for innovating, I guess. Yeah. So it sounds like it's like the structured management style with all the tools and, and, and the different, uh, you know, templates and things like that help, I would guess, for A, the maybe the new manager, the, the manager without a lot of experience, right, to give them a place to start to build a foundation. And tell me if I'm off here, but maybe also for like the very, very new company where you may have a experienced manager, but these are all new people coming in, you know, like the, like a startup startup, where this is just like a group of people that have not yet had a chance to really gel and kind of create that unit sort of cohesion, right? So maybe it's structured to start, but you're saying that eventually, and I don't know where the tipping point is, and we can kind of talk about how this progresses, but at some point it goes to something that's a little less structured. Yeah. Depending upon the business and depending upon a lot of factors, you may never, you know, go from one to the other. It's not like one is an evolution of the other, although they could be. I think that, you know, where you see these structured things work really, really well is when you're hiring entry-level workforce. Like when you're hiring people right out of college to be financial analysts, for instance, you know, there's creating a lot of structure to get them skilled up on, on the actual work get them skilled up on the sort of context of, of the organization, the way the organization likes to see the work product produced. You know, there's a lot of standardization and uniformity to it. That feedback and that coaching that you get through that, a lot of that structure can be really, really helpful at moving. It's more than for the manager. It's for moving the employee, the subordinate, you know, I don't like these words, through the learning curve. You know, they can be very good at that. You'll have a lower failure rate if you have great systems with entry-level people. You have a lower failure rate in general, I think, if you have great systems and in the organization for you know teaching and uh, providing structured feedback to people. However, there is a co- there is some cost to it. So think of this as a you know just two different paradigms for management. I guess is the way I would think about it. In an earlier podcast, we talked about peacetime CEO versus a wartime CEO. This is just another paradigm, and I call it management by design and management by intervention. And the intervention is all this structured approach. I think of this from as the manager, as the, the person who would be responsible for implementing these systems or using these systems with my staff, how it feels to me to do it. When the management by design, I'm, I'm really just creating an environment and uh, adding some variables to the environment, the people, the specific people that are chosen for it. And then beyond that, I'm kind of letting it sort of organically, mostly organically grow in the right direction, course correcting from time to time. So that's by design. Versus management by intervention, it's constant monitoring, you know, and um, providing structured feedback from again, supervisor to subordinate about what's going well, what's not going well, what they could do better. It feels like intervention because the system requires you to be constantly engaged and involved as a supervisor in order to keep things on track. So on the intervention part, I mean, the way you define it almost sounds like, by definition, micromanaging. Almost like you're like, okay, we meet this week. We set our goals for next week. Next week, review. Did you meet your goals? Did you not meet your goals? What got in the way? How do we fix the problems to allow you to meet the goals for next week, for instance? You know, and for some, like particularly people who are the person being managed, that's on one hand, I can see some people might you know chaff at it, but others, that's a form of comfort to a certain degree. It's like it reduces the uncertainty of what they're supposed to do and what they're you know they don't know what they're being judged on things like that. Is that good or bad? 
I think there's a lot of good to it. And it, it isn't necessarily micromanaging. So I'm a big fan of this system, which I've evolved slightly called situational leadership. And essentially the way that works is you as the supervisor, you have to adopt one of four leadership styles. I often interview and, and have hired managers. And sometimes when they say in the interview, they say, I'm not a micromanager. Now, when they say that, I know that they're not a very good manager because <laughs> being a micromanager is not a great thing. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that sometimes for the benefit of the managed, being a micromanager is exactly what you need. Like when you're trying to teach someone to do something that they have no experience with, giving them higher levels of direction is better for them. It's harder on the manager, but it's better for them. Situational leadership essentially is a framework where you can analyze the current, uh, the current sort of disposition or development stage that the managed person is in, and then apply the right leadership style for the particular situation, the particular person, and the particular skill that they're, they're working on. All right. So putting aside the, the nuances of situational leadership, which could easily become a rabbit hole that gets us away from what we're trying to get into here, let's apply that same concept to these two paradigms that you mentioned, management by intervention and management by design. Do you approach some management interactions with some staff on more of an intervention style versus others that's more of a design style? Or is it all kind of an overarching thing throughout the rest of the company? And, and I'm not just talking about royalty exchange in particular, I'm talking about in general. My preference is definitely to design instead. If you can thoughtfully construct the environment and the main variables in that environment, the results of the team can surprise you. Things can happen that you can't imagine. I guess here's the risk, is in the structured and like using situational leadership and the other things that are out there in a highly structured environment, I can manage to what I can imagine being possible. I can really work to get the most out of the team that we have or the individuals within that team that we have. But it's really limited by my own knowledge and my own uh, imagination about what's possible. On the by design, it doesn't suffer from those same limits. There's more downside in it because you allow for a greater margin of failure, I guess, you know, in the day-to-day activities of people because you're not managing them that closely. But you create an environment where essentially there's, you know, people can follow their curiosity. They can innovate on small levels. They can do things that they think are important, you know, that to contribute to the overall mission, then ultimately producing sometimes things that you never even imagined were possible. I mean, you don't get much surprise to the upside when you're managing by intervention. I don't know, this might be a bad analogy, but I kind of go back to that school testing sort of theory where it's like, you have these assignments, you have these tests, you get your grade, you get this other test, you get this grade, you're able to judge yourself along the way, and then you get done and here's your thing. And there's how people respond to that and, they, and people get the grades they get. And then there's another sort of theory where it's like, you don't give them any feedback on their grades whatsoever <laughs> until the very end. And those that are concerned end up doing very, very well. Those that think they're not doing as well as they should be actually do much better. And those that think they're doing just fine actually do much worse because you're not getting that, that sort of success uh, you know, button pressed. The feedback. Right. So I believe that feedback is critical to designing a, a proper environment. So you have to have good feedback loops. To use that analogy about grades, I would think that in that structured environment of education today, the end is known. It's passing, hopefully passing with a certain standard, but, you know, and getting a degree. But it's like, it's known. So, so you know before you begin, you're going to get somewhere probably between an A and a B in this area. Or, you know, if you're a reasonable student, you're going to get an A between an A and a B, or maybe an A through a C. But like, there's not much variable there. And you're going to end up with a degree in X. That's what you get. Well, 
with that, it's known that you can easily manage toward it. And that like very structured feedback of, you know, regular, uh, you know, exam grades and all of that stuff. That's the structured feedback that you get. And I think this works really well thinking about it management by intervention. It's a good metaphor. The thing is on the other side, a management by design, you might come out of those classes. If they're, let's say that they're business classes, you might come out of it with a, with a new business, not a degree. You might you'd get the degree also, but you'd also have, you could have a multi-million dollar business out of it. You're not putting a ceiling on what's possible because I'm not trying to manage to some, you know, pre-understood, well-understood outcome where I'm really just trying to control things and I'm creating something like a factory assembly line. I got to say, I really think the management by intervention, there's, it's valuable for a lot of people to use the management by intervention approach. I'm going to say some nasty things about it, really, but I think that it really is good for your people. And most managers are just too lazy to do it this way, even though it would be best for their organization and best for their staff. You know, if at least during certain periods, they would use a more structured approach. Definitely. However, I think it's pretty dehumanizing. You know, essentially, you're like, in management by design, you, you end up with diversity of personalities and skill sets. Management by intervention, you typically end up with, you know, kind of a homogenous set of personalities. You're almost hiring people going, well, the will they work within this system? You know, will they succeed within this system? I'm going to have these requirements of them. We're going to have these feedback loops. You know, are they open to the, you know, coaching and feedback that I'm going to give them regularly? That kind of thing. Whereas on the management design, it's exactly the opposite. I used the analogy with you before, as a lot of times where, where this approach causes the most grief is it causes grief among staff where there's friction in working with each other. Yes. Where there's two different ideas about what should be done. Or even some people have difficulty working together because there's a personality clash. <laughs> you know, you, you know, I, I do know. And the thing is, is I think those things are not bad. I don't think that they're a problem. You don't really want anything nasty or negative between people, but that sort of friction I don't see as a problem at all. I think good stuff comes out of friction in a lot of cases. This really kind of speaks to a lot of your broader philosophies, which I don't want to get too, too, too into. Like a, you would definitely have this sense, just this broader, taking a step back from even management for a second, you have this broader philosophy that you like environments where mistakes can happen because those mistakes lead to lessons and strengthening whether it's a system or a person or, or whatever, like you definitely like to have things set up in a way that allows for failures and mistakes and, and that sort of thing, even if they're bad in the short term, because you feel that that creates a long-term, I mean, I think you use the word resiliency a lot, but I, mean, I don't know if I'm getting too far outside of your thinking here. So no, I think that's right. That's kind of how you think in general. And so now you're applying this to more of the management thing. You, you basically talk about by design, you've designed, here's the company that we have, here's our goals and what we're trying to achieve. Here's your general roles go figure it out, kind of, is what it sounds like. Yeah, and I mean, in some places, it needs a lot, it needs more direction. It means, you know, it's a collaborative relationship, really, with people on your team. I believe it's a responsibility of a manager to create an environment where their people might flourish. It's might flourish, but the opportunity to flourish exists, and the choice really is theirs. I think that a lot of that is, I can't make somebody be great at something, but I can give them enough space where they can find a way that they can be great within the organization. And a lot of times you, you might hire people for a job and realize that that's not really the right fit for them. You can see the talents they have. You can see the skills and the drive that they have and giving them a little bit of room, you know, giving them room within the organization where they can step in and fill vacuums that you don't even see. Management by intervention requires this omniscience, this omnipresence. It's a totally impossible. 
you can't see everything and know everything that's going on, but the people in the organization can. If the culture and the expectations really are around stepping into those vacuums and that that's rewarded, even if the errors come from it, then I think that that ends up working out really well. On the design end, on the design paradigm, it sounds like a real critical component for that style of management to succeed starts at the hiring process. You got to find the right people that are going to be able to handle that type of environment. You know, the key thing with this is that the focus on or by design is on environment and people. Those are the two main variables. And I, I'll go in each one of those. And on the other side, it's systems and structured feedback. That's the way I would think of it. People are almost irrelevant in an intervention one. They're almost irrelevant. I mean, they're not irrelevant. You want achievers, you want people, but, it, but it's not as critical as it is on the other side. Choosing the right people is huge. And I think that part of it is just finding people that you think have enough innate curiosity that they're going to just sort of they have experience, some experience in their work. So it's a little easier than when you're not hiring entry-level people, but they have experience in their work and they're driven by their own sense of curiosity or their own innate sense of responsibility to take care of things. So like, you know, one of our really great members of our team is uh, Didi and Didi has this, like she steps in and takes responsibility like crazy. She's so good at that, you know, and it really having her around means that more things are observed and taken care of, more people are observed and taken care of than we would have otherwise. And it's just in her nature to do that. And yeah, she has a specific job, but you know, that responsibility she brings with her all the time because it's her. You know, others, it's curiosity that drives them. I mean, Gary is a great example of this. It's curiosity. Gary is like endlessly curious, endlessly curious about things. And so, yeah, that does sometimes take time and the organizational energy in a direction slightly that is not that is not fruitful, but we also discover lots more about what's possible because of that exploration. And within these people, there's almost this natural conflict that exists, though, because one of them might favor really you know, responsible, known outcomes, that kind of thing, and the other one has this natural preference for exploration. The great thing you have to have to be successful is feedback to be resilient, you know, as an organization and to grow or do anything well. You have to have good feedback. In the management by intervention, the feedback is structured, but it's somewhat artificial. It's somewhat made up. It's like KPIs. We're just deciding that these are the things that matter, and we're saying that these, these data points are the fixed things that matter, and then we work organically and look to those things all the time to see if we're on track or not. And a lot of times, they can actually mislead you because you know, there might be something you didn't include in that number or think about in advance, but you're managing to that number nonetheless. And the other one, a lot of the key feedback metrics come from the other people, like the natural resistance that you run into with other people. Like when we're trying to get something done in the organization and there's pushback from somebody, it's not illegitimate pushback. You have, can't have an ego for any of this to work. Like you have to have people who are willing to set ego aside and really care about really the mission really more than you know their status or whatever. So that's key for sure in making sure that you can make this work. But the feedback you get, the friction you get from other people that, that are in the organization as we're trying to execute on ideas ends up being some of the most valuable feedback you can get to sort of retool and you know, make sure we're on the right track. So back to the people then, just for a second. You mentioned the different characteristics that the right people need to have in order to thrive in a, a design-managed environment. But how do you hire for that? <laughs> Royalty exchange, and, and I don't know if this is how you do all of your prior business, it's quite a, I guess, uh, involved uh, hiring process. It's very long many, many steps, uh, 
people might just get like sick of the process and just self-select out of it, <laughs> given how much there is to it and whatnot. Is is that is that part of trying to find the right person for this environment? Yeah, it's really important. The ego thing is a big thing. So you got to find out if if the ego is so big that that they will be not so big, but such a factor in the way that they make decisions, the way that they conduct themselves, that it gets in the way of them being able to grow within the organization. So that's something that definitely comes out. People can control these things in an interview for a period of time. But if the interview is structured enough and done properly enough, they, you know, stuff slips out, like whether they want to or not. And so it does help pick the right people. But I think, you know, what I really like in people is I like people who have a point of view. As it's actually very rare that people have a point of view. You know, I'm just like, well, I don't know. I mean, what, well, how would everyone else feel about this? Or, you know, how do, um, how do most people in Denver feel about this topic? That's, you know, that's how they're going to kind of go with the majority is in most things. You know, they're just not really thoughtful, very superficial level of point of view on most things. Whereas some, you know, and I would say if you, you notice this is probably a pretty common trait among the people in our organization is that people have strong points of view about things that maybe not important to the business, don't have anything to do with our business. But the kind of person who has a strong point of view is able to develop that independently. There are some core characteristics there that are really interesting. And I think that make it so that they can be an independent um, catalyst within the organization because they, they're going to bring that to the table. They're going to bring that with the way that they form that independent thinking, their independent point of view is going to contribute to the, the development of the organization in ways that you can't even really imagine. I'll even add to that as someone in the organization that I, I mean, there's, that's a, it's a positive feedback loop, right? Like you look for folks that have the point of view. A lot of folks, particularly when they come in new, they're going to have the point of view. They're going to express the point of view to an extent, but they kind of want to test the wall. You know, it's, it's human nature. You don't want to come in there and just like, you know, right away start ringing a bell. But once they realize that the environment is such that celebrates the expression of particularly opposing points of view, those points of views just comes out even further. So you, you're finding someone that has it, and then you have an environment that draws it out even further. It's absolutely right. And so you talk about people selection. I mean, that's one of the strongest things that I look for. Also, you know, the, the track record that, you know, that people have experienced and have succeeded in the thing that you're trying to hire them for. I mean, obviously, that's a big part of it, too, in the selection of them. Beyond that, though, the environment, I, I, really, I want to talk about that a little bit, because if you don't create the right environment, even if you have the right people there, then it won't work. And a lot of people just will lump this under culture. And that's fine. I, I don't care what people call it. But I think, you know, some of the things in the environment are things that you know, the way that the organization is physically structured, and now you know, we've had to adapt and work in remote, a lot of people have, but sometimes the way you physically structure the organization and the space that you're in can be part of that environment. Sometimes part of that environment can be the sort of battle rhythms of the business, you know, the, the formal meetings that you might have, whether you have none or you have a few or you have lots, I mean, that kind of affects the environment. And certainly culturally related is the idea that you know, they're liking dissent, encouraging dissent. And, and I try hard, although, you know, I don't like it when people are disagreeing with me, you know, in the moment, I might not like it. I noticed that relatively recently. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I love the way it makes the ideas better. It always does. What comes out of the heat of debate is a better idea, always. No matter what, so I would give an example just so people could understand what you're saying, and, and tell me if this is a good example or not. But when you talk about like the environment and sort of how people are even placed in the office. So a while back, this is like maybe a year or more ago, we have a strange office in that we basically have two separate offices separated by a common like hallway in the building, and so it's, it's just a space issue, right? 
It's not ideal, but that's just how it is, right? And at one point, by design, we put all of the sales team into one office, and that was sort of their space, and then we had everybody else in the other one. And they were all together. What became obvious after a time was that it almost started to create this like us and them mentality. And we since had switched that up and, and it had a big res- uh, effect having done so. But it was really interesting. Like I, it seemed like a great idea, it seemed like a great team kind of building idea. But then it kind of got to this point where it's like it was subtle. And I think we did it in the bud before it became an actual, you know, systemic problem. But there was like even some animosity starting to come up a, a little bit there too. So I thought that I think that's an example, I think, of the environment thing that you're talking about. Humans, when they're separated from each other by physical distance, it's easy for them to dehumanize each other. You know, it's more than that because it was. You had these teams, you had these groups, you had these tribes. Because now we're all separated, but we're all separated individually. And I would argue that we've actually come together even more as a team as a result. Yeah, that's how I've been uh, taking it. I've been getting along with. I mean, maybe it's because I just need not to be around people. I get along with them better. But like, it really is a difference. It's like there's that group separation versus that individualized separation. Exactly. Yeah, the tribal part about. I mean, there's a natural conflict between sales organization within a business and everyone else in that business always anyway it almost always exists there's some conflict there but yeah by separating them by allowing them to they i mean they could go you know throughout the entire day and never physically interact with anyone else in the business you know in that office and they're right there they're, i mean it's not like it's far away but they could do that and you're right it did start to cause some greater division and some some bigger problems there so yeah the structure of the office definitely can matter and the things that you, especially if you're, you're you're the manager, and the things that you encourage, and the things that you discourage, and you have to be very careful of the way that you the way you conduct yourself in a meeting. A lot of times, I will just not be present for meetings because I know that my presence, even if even though I try and encourage you know, active debate, that sometimes my presence actually can be like a wet blanket on the on the uh, you know on the conversation. Like the conversation, different things would come out of it if I'm not present, and that's what you find with whenever you have a good team in this and the management by design approach the greatest variables you have are the members of that organization that you bring together for certain activities i could put together a different groups of three people in our organization focused on a specific project and we would get totally different results from the work of those different teams based upon the composition of those team members because they are so substantially different in what they bring to the table the biggest variable, the biggest lever you have as a manager in management by design is who are you including in this new effort right now? And who are you excluding from this right now? And I think that from that, you can come up with the best the best results, essentially. I have two questions. But first of all, the small one on the people thing, is any of this why you have folks take those personality test things that we did? Is that part of it? Is, is that a real component of this or is that not? I think people are endlessly curious about themselves, actually. I mean, maybe not everyone is, but why do you think those Cosmo polls, you know, are have been so popular in, in Cosmopolitan magazine and why BuzzFeed has these polls, you know, constantly, uh, you know, that are incredibly popular because people want to know about themselves, even though those are not scientific and they're kind of ridiculous. People find it very interesting. And when they learn something about themselves from it, they can better interact with others. And it's just a, it provides a common language for people. And then again, some people take it to different levels. You know, some people get really into it and spend a lot of time understanding it, and others just kind of look at it and go, "Yeah, that seems mostly true." So this is not something that you're that's necessarily helping you create these 
for instance, teams of three or anything like that? Is, is, how much of a guide for you as the manager of, of, of these people, is that something that you incorporate into your... It's helpful from a macro perspective. I wouldn't say in those, you know, and organizing these little quick reaction teams, or, you know, or project teams that are working on specific things. It's not that helpful in that because I understand the people well enough at that point for that, that I would include in those things. But it really helps when you, you can identify major weaknesses in the organization. There's one that we have where it basically says most people are, it breaks people into four different groups, essentially, you know, where people tend to, you know, be idea people. People tend to be, you know, kind of the doers who basically are, you know, execute on the ideas. Some people are improvers. It's like this combination of all these different things. And you can see on a pie chart, essentially, where everyone in our organization sits. And we could see Plains Day, essentially, holes within certain areas. And so knowing that those are some of the holes that we could, Look out for that more when we were in our hiring and give a little weighted preference, essentially, to people who might lean one way or another. So it allows you to help kind of fill gaps more globally or understand where you're suffering as an organization, because those all show preferences. Not that, you know, people are never going to be executors, that they're only going to be, you know, improvers or whatever the categories actually are. It's just that their natural preference is one over the other. And so by knowing that that's our preferences, we can say, hey, this is a not something that we would generally prefer to do. It would be our default, you know, is to follow this, create a, you know, a long-term plan for this and follow through each week on this, you know, depending upon the team. But knowing that that's a weakness, let's figure out how we can manage ourselves to do it, you know, to get through it. The biggest question I had right now is, does the size of the company have an impact on these design styles? I mean, we're a smaller company. It feels like it's a lot easier to have the management by design scenario that you've outlined when you have a smaller team. When you start getting into companies like in the thousands, I wonder if that's as sustainable. I think you're right. I think that, oh, I can't remember who came up with this idea, but there's a study about you can only really have a relationship with about 150 people, you know, that you can know their name and when you see them, recognize who they are in the hallway. And, you know, once you get above that number, it just becomes very, very difficult. It's, it's another tribe at that point. So I think it's true that when, you know, it's, it's a totally different challenge once you get above that number. Now you could, though, have this within certain departments within an organization. Right, right. So no. certain teams may be able to have more of a design-based uh, structure while others might have a more intervention type. But even that causes problems, particularly when you have to interact. Like, okay, you could have a creative team, a marketing department or something like that, or, or communications department, right? That's more design. I could see the more creative side having that component. But once they got to interact with a tech team to implement an idea or accounting and budgeting or something like that, these animosities come up, but it's, and it also becomes very harder to execute what you need because you have to, you rely on another team that has a different style than yours. And then it kind of breaks down. Bridging the gap between functional groups within an organization is always one of the challenges that as an organizational leader, you have to deal with. There's solutions for it. Sometimes you have to create real tight structures about how information goes from one group to the other, you know, about that handoff, how that's managed. I mean, in our organization, from sales to account management, it's a potential area of disaster the way that that could be handled. You know, and I think at this point, through good people focused on the outcomes and structure around it, it works out well. But I understand. I mean, you can't keep it loose. You have to have it understood from both sides and agreed to by both of those groups, essentially, how you know, it's going to go from transferring a client from one end of the business to the other. If the organization is all management by intervention, you're still going to have this problem. Yeah, that's always going to be there, right? And then early in, the, in the, our conversation, we talked about how in some cases it might particularly when you're starting a company, right? If you're literally building from the ground up, you might start with a much more of a structured intervention style management paradigm. And then eventually it could evolve. And I don't, maybe that's the wrong word, 
but it becomes more of this design paradigm. I'm wondering if there's any tells, any signs, any milestones that might be an indication as to when you might want to start making that switch, or if it's just, it's just purely organic and it just happens when it happens. You know, it's tough to say because I have I don't think I've transitioned an organization from one to the other. What happens though in the intervention approach in situational leadership, in particular, using that, it starts off with super high direction. You're with a subordinate. You're really making you're giving them explicit instructions of what needs to happen. But over time, it evolves to what is called delegation, which, you know, you're not involved in the day-to-day of what they're doing. I mean, you're giving them much more free reign as an individual to do it. So there still is some structured feedback within there, but you're you're not even there to support them in the same way anymore. You know what I mean? You're not like trying to make sure their head's on straight. You just have, you have trust in their competence and their motivation to get things done that need to get done. So within the management by intervention, there is this natural process where it goes from very tight to very loose, but still the organization still functions primarily around this sort of almost top-down management approach. For instance, let me just give you some comparing between these things, uh, some words that I would associate with them. The first one I'll mention in each of these groupings was, is management by design. So I would think of autonomy in management by design, much more autonomy as compared to structure, curiosity, KPIs, environmental feedback, supervisor feedback. Okay, So environmental feedback is a lot of times the other people that are working toward the same goal. It comes from them. It comes from the results of specific experiments you might be engaging in. In the other version, most of the feedback that matters to you comes from your supervisor. You know, just telling you this was good, this was bad. These are the results we, we need. These are, you know, not the results that we can accept. That kind of thing. Another one I'd say is differentiated strengths versus a lack of weaknesses. And this is the other individuals. Diverse personalities versus homogenous personalities. Market forces versus command economy. Why don't you start with that last one? Because I'm not, I don't know what that means. Market forces versus command economy. What's a command economy? Command economy is... Communism okay. is command economy. Okay, I get it. All right. We need this many you know, bushels of wheat produced this year. The thing is, is that it requires a leader in the business who really, who knows everything, or at least can pretend they know everything, or deludes themselves into thinking that they know everything. I don't know, but I, it's just impossible, I think. And so there's more that I don't know than I, what I do know, for sure. And I specifically don't know what's possible. Like this simple thing, for example. How specifically should the hours of work today for our staff be allocated? What specifically should each of them be working on today? It's an important, important decision because if those hours are allocated, because it's the most, it's the biggest cost we have as our staff. It's the most important resource we have for our, of our, our teammates. So how they spend their day over time will totally uh, produce the results that we want or keep us from succeeding. It's, it is the most critical thing. There are two approaches to this. One, I can, through directly or by proxy, dictate the way those hours should be spent. Or I can allow them to make individual choices based upon what they, their understanding of the business and their commitment to producing a great outcome. I can allow them to choose how they allocate their individual time to produce the best result, knowing that they have more information about the specifics than I do, that I could ever have, and hoping while there will be some errors, there will be some mistakes made, you know, in the way that some might spend their time. But on the whole, we end up in a far better spot because of the, the feedback loops the individuals have, the information they have is better. They make better decisions individually and collectively we end up with a better result. I want to go to the volunteerism part. 
this needs to be done. Who wants to take it on? Sounds great for the person with you know the most uh, motivation or ideas or ability might naturally step up. But I can see a lot of, and I've seen a lot of problems with that. Like the person who should be doing this the least is the one who wants to do it the most, and they end up doing it and, and cock it up or something like that, right? Or you got two people that want to do it. They have a polar opposite ideas of how it should be done. Do they both get to do it, and then you decide which one's better? Like, how, explain that part because that that part feels to me like. It sounds nice, but I could see so many ways that can go wrong. Well, there are lots of ways it can go wrong, but the alternative is that I, directly or by proxy, choose who should take on exactly what task. Well, at times, don't you have a preference who you would want to take on a certain task and you say, hey, I would like you to do this? I mean, at some point, that's going to come up. That is person I prefer to do it if they want to do it, you know? Because if they don't want to do it, if they don't want to do it, they will do a worse job than somebody who might be slightly less qualified who is interested in doing it. This, for me, is the part that I struggle with the most. Maybe it's just part of my background where, you know, like as a reporter, you know, I had like a certain beat and, and if someone suddenly wanted to write a story in my beat who doesn't know anything about the players or the topics or the issues, why should they be writing that story? Because they're going to get it wrong. And then I'm going to come in and I'm going to, you know, cause a problem. And then now you've got this situation. So apply the same thing to a business and you get the same issue. Like, you know, let's suppose I decided I wanted to write code for the website all of a sudden. You know, I mean, There's going to be a number of people at the company who are going to have an issue with that. So that's what I'm trying to get at. And I mean, these are extreme examples, but but just to make a point. Well, we don't often find in reality, though, that people who are totally unqualified for something stepping up and wanting to do it. I mean, in our organization, we just don't see that that often. I can't think of an example off the top of my head. Something that is more of a worry than a reality. Because usually, and somebody who is going to step up into something that's new for them is usually not something that where it's a super high risk to the organization if it doesn't go perfectly. There are some things that are really difficult. We're talking about this thing about um, you know engaging some of our past customers in a certain way. The, the other day we were just talking about you know if you weren't willing to project manage that effort, then I would just say well maybe we shouldn't do it because I just think I don't think we could do it well. But I, don't, I also don't think if you weren't you know willing or interested in stepping into that and doing it, then I think that it wouldn't produce a good result either. I can suggest and I can ask, but I, I would always want to let people know that if they really don't want to do it, that I don't want, I definitely don't want them to. Yeah. And what's interesting about that particular example is that the idea came from yet another person new to the company, you know, who brought it up. It was sort of a reminder because it's something we've tried in the past and hasn't really worked. But now there's someone else who also has that desire and motivation to take some steps to make it happen. We'll see where it all goes. I'm always like, well, you know, so you have the new person who doesn't know why, why it hasn't worked in the past, who wants to try it again, which is necessary. And then you have someone who's been around for a while and knows all the ways that it fell in the holes in the past to try to cover those holes so that this time the motivation doesn't fizzle out. And it just takes time for those components to come together, I guess. The energy that comes from somebody who volunteers for something is totally different than when you give someone an assignment. Think about it. You see it in your daughter. When she wants to do something, which she, I mean, she's a you know very creative, very high energy, gets to do stuff person, is at least what I have gotten from her. I just imagine when it's driven by her own curiosity that when it comes from her, you know, it just comes with an extra energy versus a suggestion from dad. You're absolutely right. When there's something that she wants to do, it's not only does it get done in a timely fashion, it gets complete, all the components are for the most part checked off. Whereas if I give her something to do, it's like there's usually eight things that I need the reminder to do again. Right. You have to be more involved in the process. You have to supervise it. So in the management by intervention, you can do that. You can basically give assignments to people because you have a structure where you're checking in on people. There's follow-up, there's inspection, you know, but the management by design, the whole idea is that if you are only engaging in products that are projects, 
that have that energy of someone's own curiosity or that, that something that they want to see happen. The measure is only possible when you have that volunteerist approach to it. So I'm going to answer what I'm sure is a question in some's mind, which is that, you know, there are some jobs that are just sort of what I would consider or you would consider to be less desirable tasks, but are necessary for things to get done. So who volunteers for those? Well, frankly, there are people who prefer to do those things. That's right. A lot of people think that there are jobs that people wouldn't want. Those are jobs that you wouldn't want. But there are a lot of people who like a lot of structure in their day. They like these sort of routine. There are some people, and we have, we're blessed to have some employees uh, like this who really like to check things off a list. Like that is very important to them. They start their day with this list. And, you know, for them, a good day is when they've been able to check all these items off their list effectively. Like that's not me. And thank God we have some really good people who have that approach because, you know, they keep the trains running. Right, exactly. Those are the bulk of my questions. I mean, this has actually been really illuminating because as someone who's, according to LinkedIn, we've been working together for four years. (laughs) I just got a little notice of the anniversary thing. But having worked in the system, it's really interesting being on the other side of it to a degree in that there are times where this design thing can be frustrating without a doubt. But then again, any work situation can be frustrating sometimes. So it's just a matter of where the frustration is placed, right? Can I give you my, my metaphor I've used before? Sure, of you? course. Basically, when there's tension among some high performers in our business, and I say, you know, I like these tensions. And I like, these, I like people who have really defined strengths. It balances out in some way somewhere else where there's a weakness. My ideal team is the A team. It's the, <laughs> That's the Okay, now I know what you're talking about. Yep. The A team, for those of you who don't know, you should definitely at least go watch the most recent movie. But this was a show that was you know, on when I was a kid, and I loved it. And they made a movie, which is, actually turned out pretty good recently. You have this total badass guy, B.A. Baracus, who like, is the toughest man you'd ever meet. Like, he, can just, he can do anything, but he's terrified of flying. Like, petrified, paranoid, deeply afraid of flying. Part of the reason he's afraid of flying, by the way, is because the pilot is the best pilot in the world. He's amazing, but he's totally insane. He's completely insane. And so it's like these different characters, and there's always tension between these two, as certainly, as on the team. But those tensions produce better results. They get you to creative outcomes, you know, and being really, really strong in something almost necessarily means you're going to be weak somewhere else, and that's okay. I'd take the A team every day over, you know, some homogenized, you know, highly skilled, but very limited in terms of the range of skills, have been very agreeable team. I just don't think that, that would produce the best results. I just want to add this to the end here is that for it to work, for all those people on that team to work to, you know, accept the frustrations that this system naturally creates, even positive frustrations, right? For all of that to work in a positive way at the end, there's got to be this element of trust. There's been times where I've been so furious at people at this company, and I guarantee you, I've inspired that same degree of of, of infuriation with others. But it all comes out because we all know that we all trust that we're all aiming for the same goal. It's not about self-aggrandizement, that ego thing that you mentioned you know, before. I know that we're all trying to get to something. And that's a really critical component. You got to have that, that trust. And you need to be able to trust the people across from you, standing next to you, et cetera. It's a big, big part of it. At least their intentions, you know? Right. They're not trying to screw with you. They're not, trying, they're not serving some separate interest than what you're trying to serve. You know, their intentions are, are definitely moving toward the same place. And while the, then that disagreement makes the outcome better for all of us. Right. This has been really illuminating because, again, having been in it and understanding kind of why you do some of those things, some of the ways that you've structured things makes a lot of sense. I, I find myself strangely attracted to that. You know, my personality is, is attracted to this kind of system. And I don't think I really realized it as much until after, as some may know, I actually had at one point left the company for reasons that had nothing to do with not wanting to be with Royalty Exchange, but for 
other aspirations that I've had, you know, in, in my life. And the company that I went to, the organization I went to was completely the opposite, highly intervention, highly structured. And I choked in it. I could not function as much as I loved what the company did. And as a result, I left and came back. I don't know, I'm almost 50. So it took me this long to figure out something about myself, <laughs> which is that apparently I thrive better in those types of environments where I can have that autonomy and that ability to be creative and follow my curiosity and all these things, even with all the frustrations that might result in. So uh, yeah, I think it just comes down to hiring the kind of people like, like us who, who, who want that. I mean, of all the things we talked about, it really is, is people and trust. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart, I think. I think you're totally right. And I think that the, the talented people you really want to hire, though, almost inevitably thrive in this kind of environment. They typically do not thrive in environments where the people are fundamentally replaceable. I told you the two fundamental characteristics of the intervention, you know, it's systems and structured feedback. A lot of those jobs, a lot of those roles, you feel like they could eventually they're going to be automated by some not too smart version of AI. Like, cause it's not that complicated. The part that the humanity is in the other side of it. I mean, the part that's really interesting. If you find individuals interesting, if you really think that individuals can do really cool things when given the opportunity, you know, when placed in the right environment, then the intervention approach is difficult to swallow, honestly. So to close then, is there any other resources, uh, books, articles, websites, people, TED Talks, anything that people can look to to, to kind of satisfy any further curiosity around these lines? There's lots of great books on culture. Um, you know, I, I mentioned uh, we started off this conversation talking about wartime and peacetime CEOs. I definitely encourage you to listen to the earlier version of that podcast that we have on, on wartime CEO. I think that's helpful. Situational leadership. There's a number of books out there about that, and I think that that's certainly worth understanding more about. I think that from a structured systems, it's worth spending some time on that. You know, the management by design, I don't, I can't think of anything that really talks about this so much. There are lots of books that focus on culture, though. The people who left Netflix, former people there, talk about the culture part. So there's one called Radical Candor. Could be good. Okay, Radical Candor. Okay, good. I actually read that one. I love that book. If we think of some others, we'll add them to the show notes and onto the Substack article that accompanies this episode and then we'll, we'll add a few more in there they kind of sprung that one on you a little bit at the end so apologies no problem all right great well thanks thank you i appreciate it all right next time you've been listening to the smith sense podcast if you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his Substack at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes or leave questions. You can also follow Matt on Twitter at livingstoic or myself at Anthony N. Bruno. If you've liked what you've heard, please leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your podcast platform might be. And of course, sharing it with your friends would go a long way as well. Quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for compiling the show notes, to our producer engineer, Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and you've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.